This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Welcome back into Play-By-Play Cast, everybody. My name is Joel Godet. This is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast, diving into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. As always, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at PXPCast, and you can reach out to me at Joel Godet or by shooting me an email J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U for Ball State University. Our guest today is Eric Reed, who is one of the few remaining Heat originals. The television play-by-play voice of the Miami Heat, and Eric Reed has been with the Heat, not necessarily in that capacity, but has been with the Heat in a capacity, and we'll, we'll touch on that as we get into the podcast, uh, since day basically day one of the franchise, since... Since game one, certainly, not necessarily day one, but since game one, uh, Eric Reed has been a member of the Miami Heat organization. He is one of those Heat originals. He and his partner, Tony Fiorentino, who will be uh, stepping aside at the end of this season. Um, Those two guys go back a long ways, and Eric has worked with a handful of different guys on television. Uh, Mike Fratello is a name that a lot of folks will know. Uh, The late Dr. Jack Ramsey is a name that a lot of folks will know, but uh, Eric Reed and Tony Fiorentino are one of the longer tenured and preeminent play-by-play analyst duos in uh, the NBA today. And Eric's career uh, did not start there. He's uh, from New York and went to college at Ithaca and uh, began his career in the Northeast. He was with Cornell and then went to Providence College from 1982 to 1988. He called the Final Four run with Rick Pitino and Billy Donovan and uh, has done a handful of other different things as well for ESPN, for Nesson, for Brown, um, for the University of Miami, for the University of South Florida. Uh, He called the NCAA lacrosse championships for ESPN. So uh, Eric Reed has, has seen a lot of different things and called a lot of different things, but he is most notable for being the television voice of the Miami Heat. And uh, maybe this is just me, but like when I listen to Eric Reed, particularly if you find highlights of Eric Reed, like the little Iron Eagle, I think, just in his delivery. Um, and for anybody that knows me, like Ian is my my like pedestal icon. Um, so I was I was glad I got a chance to to talk to Eric Reed, not if only for that, um, but uh, because he, he's been around the block. He's very good at what he does, uh, and, he, and he had some good insight. And uh, this is kind of one of our, it's one of our wonkier podcasts that we've done. We kind of get into the nitty gritty of, of what he does and what he thinks sounds good and how he gets there. Uh, I, was, I was just in a very, 
I was in a very detail-oriented space when I had this conversation with Eric Reed. So uh, that's kind of the direction uh, we go, more so than kind of storytelling of things he's seen and, and uh, things he's witnessed throughout his career on this episode. But uh, let's dive in. Without further ado, uh, Eric Reed joins us to talk about his time with the Miami Heat and what it's like to be the voice of the Miami Heat on television and exactly how he goes about doing it here on Play by Playcast, episode number 84. You know, 30 years ago, uh, when I got the job with the Miami Heat, it w- you know, I was 30 years old at the time. I had done 12 years of college basketball and a ton of other things, you know, leading up to that. And I was living in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I was doing Providence College basketball on the radio. I was doing a lot of stuff recently on, on TV in Boston, working for Nesson. And, um, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff for the Red Sox. But, you know, baseball was is, a, is not a passion for me. And even though they dangled, you know, that I could be the next TV voice of the Red Sox back then in the late 80s, um, you know, if I was a baseball guy and I had a long career in minor league baseball prior to that, um, I would have certainly stayed put. But I would have I would have left uh, to go anywhere in the country at that time in my life for an NFL or an NBA job. And the fact that it turned out to be the Miami Heat that gave me an opportunity um, you know, the NBA was a passion for me. I, I grew up in New York and had a dad who was a basketball, you know, fanatic. Um, you know, I was going to Jets and Knicks games with him from the time I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. Um, so it, it was sort of in my blood to, to watch the NBA. And uh, I feel like this is my second lifetime in the NBA uh, because of him. But, you know, when I interviewed for the heat job, uh, the the it's my interview process started right after the 1987 or 88 big East tournament, uh, in New York. And, uh, a mutual friend of Mr. Chaffelle, uh, Louis Chaffelle was the managing general partner of the Miami heat. When, when the heat first started a uh, mutual friend of his and mine, uh, you know, called me up and said, would you, would you be interested in applying for the radio job for the Miami heat? And I was obviously very interested in that. <laughs> And I ended up flying down to, to Miami and meeting with Mr. Chaffelle. And when we met, you know, what, what happened was he broke it down. He said, well, I, you know, uh, I'm interviewing you for the radio job. But what I really want to do is simulcast our games. Do, you know, only two or three teams w- were doing that back in the late 80s still. I think Phoenix uh, was one. The Lakers w- w- were another. And, um, you know, there was one or, one or two other teams. Utah was simulcasting. So Lewis in this meeting broke it down and he said, if I can find an experienced simulcaster uh, to come to Miami, then I'd want you to do color, uh, you know, on the simulcast. And when I heard that, my heart dropped because I, I didn't see any possibility that I could be successful as a color analyst at the NBA level. That always goes to coach ex-coaches or ex-players. How'd you do it? I went back to Providence and, and Boston to, you know, to my, to my life there. And this was even before the internet and computers. I hate to date myself, but this was the late eighties and nobody had that. Right. (laughs) So I ended up getting a subscription of the Miami Herald that was delivered to my house a day late. And, you know, that's how I followed the the spring before the Miami heat started in the fall of 88. And one day in the middle of the summer was probably, it was after the NBA. I followed the expansion draft and the NBA draft (laughs) from the newsroom at Nesson. I was totally, I figured, you know, I was so into pursuing this job and I followed it really closely because I was so uh, infatuated by the, the opportunity. 
And I said, you know, even if I don't get it, it's going to be a fun pursuit. Sure. And then one July day, I open up my, my day old Miami Herald and it says heat hire Sam Smith to do play by play on the simulcast. He, he left the Spurs to come to the heat and I closed the Herald and I picked up the telephone and I called up my, my boss at, at, at the new England sports network. I said, I'm coming back. I'm back because you know, the, the Boston college football, I was doing Boston college football for them at that time. And, um, I said, I'm back. I'm back. I didn't get the job. And now, and I never heard from the heat. And now we go to September. I'm sorry to get so involved in this, this, in how I got the no, job, you're but good. it's a, it's a night in September. I'm, I get home from a summer league basketball game that I played in. It's a Sunday night, about nine o'clock. I'm all alone in my house and the telephone rings and I pick it up and I hear on the other end of the phone, Eric Lewis Sheffel. <laughs> and my heart like dropped because I really had put that dream away. Uh, feeling like I didn't get the job. And, and what he said to me was, I want you to fly down to, to Miami as soon as you can to meet with the general manager of Sports Channel Florida. He's got some play-by-play -play opportunities for you to discuss. And I want you to talk with him and, and I want you to take the job as the color analyst. And when I met with, uh, the guy's name was Jeff Gentner. He's still involved in uh, TV sports. He's uh, an executive now with with uh, Fox Sports Regional three three different fox sports regional stations but when i met with mr with jeff you know i basically uh got promised to do university of miami football play-by-play -play on on sports channel florida and a package of about 18 university of south florida basketball games and with those two play-by-play -play things attached i felt more confident to take the color job with the heat and get my foot in the door in the nba and that's what I did. And, you know, the, 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 how I was able to be successful at it, I think, was twofold. One, when I first started at Providence, the same sort of thing happened to me where I did color uh, at Providence for three years on radio before getting the play-by-play -play job. When I My first ever job at, at, at Cornell University, I did uh, when, when I was an undergrad. I got an internship and it turned into a job. I did color for a year and a half for Cornell. So now the third go round. Uh, it wasn't totally new. And what helped me succeed in those early years uh, was the fact that Ron Rossi and the first head coach of the Heat uh, made practice available to me. He even let me sit in on film sessions with the coaching staff. So it fast tracked my, my NBA knowledge. Of course, I worked six years of, of Big East basketball during the glory days of that conference and saw a lot of great college basketball players who had moved on to the NBA. So that's how I jumped in. My, I think my thought process at that point was let me hang in there long enough in that role until the simulcast splits up and I get the radio gig. Sure. And after three years of, of that situation, uh, we, Sam's, you know, Sam and I both signed three-year contracts when, when the, when the franchise started and he was not brought back. They moved me to play by play. My first color analyst was Dave Wohl, who was, uh, former assistant coach. He was, you know, down the road, he would be the general manager of the heat for a short time, but I did one year of play by play on the simulcast, which was the fourth year of the franchise. And the first year we made the playoffs and I've been, and then it split, it did split up in the fifth year and I've been doing TV play by play ever since. And, uh, obviously beyond my, my wildest dream or expectation, uh, it's so extraordinarily special to be an NBA broadcaster and even more so to have gotten involved with a, with an expansion team and to have been able to last 30 years, um, you know, 
to go from to to take this incredible journey from expansion team to three-time championship team <laughs> and to have witnessed every bounce and basket of a, of a of a basket of an NBA franchise's history uh you know just a a great opportunity and an extraordinary situation that I that I never take for granted what's it say to you that an owner uh a initially has the interest but then b calls you and says hey would you be interested in in doing the the analyst job and I've got some other stuff lined up for you uh, in terms of play-by-play and, and takes that much of an investment in somebody um, to say like, hey, I want you to be part of this and to incentivize it. Here's some other stuff I've got for you, which I feel like would seem, you know, kind of be ab- uh, above and beyond what you would normally expect. Well, he wasn't, well, he was a part owner. He was a managing partner who owned a percentage of the team. Uh, you know, I, 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 I had known Mr. Chaffel through some prior dealings i applied for the uh, radio job for the for the new jersey nets when he was the general manager there uh he first came across me when i was the announcer for cornell basketball and and uh dropped was driving through upstate new york and heard a part of my broadcast and dropped me a note when he was a gm of the new orleans jazz so we had both watched each other from afar for many years and uh it meant a lot to me uh that he had that kind of confidence in me uh, to this day, I feel like I owe him everything for opening the door of, a, uh, of an NBA career to me. And I'll never forget uh, how supportive he was and, and the opportunity he gave me. How would you describe uh, an Eric Reed broadcast on television? If somebody's never heard you, what are they getting from, from you and Tony? Well, they're, they're going to get two guys that, that love the game, that, that love their team, that have total respect for the game and put their attention almost a hundred percent on that game. They're going to get information. They're going to get energy. Um, and they're going to, they're going to have some fun while that, while they listen, because we, we enjoy the game with, with, uh, what we call heat nation. And, you know, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm one of those guys, I'm a big preparation guy, but over the years, one of the, one of the, you know, one of the core lessons that I have learned about what it takes to be successful as a play-by-play guy, and, and even or even as a television producer of games, uh, and this is how I would boil it down. There's there's two disciplines you must have the discipline to prepare diligently for every single broadcast you do. And that's challenging when you're doing 82 games, you know, an 82 game NBA season. But I think the more important discipline is not feeling like you have to use any of that preparation. Mm. I, you know, here's what I believe. The, the game tells you what to talk about, not the other way around. So you got to be confident and comfortable enough to prepare, but be unselfish about it and not feel like you got to force things in, you know, too much is as bad as too little. So striking that balance, you know, I have more stuff on my chart than I'll ever use, but I'm ready for any situation that may happen. But the real key to being a good play-by-play man, it's, you know, and, and here I've been doing this for 30 years with the Heat, you know, 42 years overall doing play-by-play basketball. It never gets old because the script is always changing and every game is different. And how you respond and react uh, to, 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 you know, to evolving circumstances and, and a game that changes by the second that's what really dictates how, how good a job you've done. How do you keep that all straight? Um, and uh, the reason I ask is, you know, when I do a Ball State game, I've got everything in order and I feel pretty good about it. Um, I did my first ESPNU game a week ago and, and 
probably drove myself a little bit too batty. Uh, my charts are always full, but I mean, if I go back and look at the chart I used for that game, I mean, like, I've got writing in the margins and, like, all sorts of everything everywhere, and I was probably over-prepared for it to where it got to the point where in the game I was like, oh, my God, wh- what do I say when and where's that nugget when I need it? Um, and, it, I mean, it, 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 was, it was the wrong way to prepare for the moment. Um, what's the way that you keep yourself organized so that not only do you have information, but you know when you, you know where to go when you need it and you know what the appropriate stuff is to use when needed? That's a great question. Um, I think, uh, you know, first of all, there's no one way to prepare for broadcasts. Uh, some of the, some of the great broadcasters in, 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 in the NBA, I always sneak a peek at, at my colleagues' preparation. There are a lot of guys in the league that, that do a much lighter job getting ready for games than me. So just, you know, I, I feel like I'm one of the most prepared broadcasters in the NBA. That doesn't mean anything, though. It's how it comes across and how you execute it. But I think in terms of tailoring your preparation, just like, just like a player or a coach, the consistency in how you prepare uh, leaves you less in a scrambling mode. You know where everything is because you put it there. And uh, you do it the same way every game. But I think it's, you know, it's the instincts to know when to look for things. And, and uh, you know, like, like, like uh, for example, we had a rookie player last night of 16 points and 15 rebounds and five blocks. So after the game, I, I didn't have it during the game, but I'm going to have it tonight and nobody's put it out yet. The 15 rebounds for Bam Adebayo last night came two rebounds shy of the Heat's all-time rookie record, which is held by a guy that's still on the team, Udonis Haslam. And I'm going to tell that story on our telecast tonight that that Bam Adebayo was four years, was seven years old when Haslam <laughs> had that 17 rebound game as a rookie. So little things like that. Um, uh, you know, last night the Heat had 64 rebounds. I went right to our record book to see, you know, what the record was for rebounds in a game. So little things you know, trigger things in your, in your mind. And, and those instincts help you prepare and and help you know when to use what. Part of this is also probably the fact that, you know, you guys have been together almost three decades, but when you go to a story like that, uh, how do you then turn it to engage Tony um, and to, uh, to create that back and forth? So it's not just kind of a, here's a 15 second, let's move on after that, but it becomes kind of a greater storyline and conversation. Well, sometimes it might just be, you know, a, a nugget and you move on. Sometimes I'll drop a nugget after Tony makes a point. If I can accentuate or add to it and I have something, I'll use it then. But one of the gifts that, that I have working with Tony Fiorentino, you know, this is going to be our last year together. This yeah. is Tony's last season broadcasting with us. But we, you know, one of the things we're so proud of, both he and I, is at the moment we are the only broadcast team in the NBA where both announcers are original employees of the franchise. So often when Jason Jackson, our courtside reporter, throws it to us to, at the beginning of the game, he says, now out of the Heat Originals. And, you know, we wear these lapel pins this year uh, commemorating the 30th year of the Heat. And it, the significance of it is so important to Tony and I that we've been there for every game over 30 years. That's very rare and very unique. So, you know, Tony's been there for every bounce and basket, just like I have. So it gives us a real unique perspective on the history of the franchise that we're broadcasting for. 
you know, we know there are a lot of young people watching and listening, but we also know there's a segment of the population that have been there on this 30 year journey with us. So you try to make it intriguing and, and enjoyable for everybody. But we, we, Tony and I both have firsthand knowledge of every single thing and every single player that's, that's uh, passed through the Miami heat. And it gives us, you know, a great platform uh, in which to tell stories and, 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 and reflect back on history and how it relates to the present. You've obviously done a lot of different things for a lot of different people uh, over time, uh, but what do you anticipate uh, it being like having to adapt to uh, a new partner and learn how to work with a new partner on a nightly basis, night in, night out, uh, come next fall? Yes, great questions. You know, I've, I've had seven or eight different partners in my, in my career with the Heat alone. Um, you know, I always think back to the eight extraordinary years I spent with, you know, Hall of Fame coach, Dr. Jack Ramsey, yeah. who passed away a few years ago. So we shared eight seasons and over 500 games together. And you talk about spending time with, you know, a basketball genius and one of the greatest people you'll ever meet. So, you know, having that partnership end uh, was difficult. But then I got to work with Ed Pinckney after that, who I knew so well from his days at Villanova and he played for the heat. And then Mike Fratello for a short time, you know, one of the great coaches in our, in, in the business and, and a, another terrific guy, but working with Tony, you know, again, we've been friends, we've been close friends, almost like brothers for 30 years. We've spent 15 years working together. Um, I don't even want to think about how many meals we've we've had together and how much time off the air we've spent together so it's unique it's special i don't think i'll ever have another broadcast relationship quite like it but it's like uh you know i always think about you know as, as a as an old time a new york knicks fan i remember when earl monroe joined walt fraser in the knicks backcourt they were rivals they were two of the best guards in the league you know at that time when, when they joined forces and I'll never forget, I, I was a huge Earl Monroe fan, how unselfish he was and how he sort of subdued his game to make it work and fit. And he won a championship together, I think, in 1973. So I look at myself as sort of the point guard of the broadcast. And, and next year, when John Crotty joins me, I will adapt. I'll evolve. I'll do whatever I have to do or am able to do to make that partnership work and start fresh then. But I'm not thinking very much about it now. I know that process will, will take care of itself come next year. And, you know, it's, it's useful in business and it's just as useful in life. Um, you know, sometimes you're forced to let go of something you really enjoy or love. But uh, letting go and moving forward is, is, a, is a really important part of life. If I can, I want to dive a little bit more into into that kind of analyst relationship as well, too. Just, and, and it's probably less a factor now because you've been doing it uh, with the two of you now for so long. Uh, but what how do you guys get on the same page before a game or in a game how much talking do you do in timeouts what do you talk about in timeouts uh, and what will you lay out before tip just to say hey what do you know here's what i know uh let's get on the same page so that i can best set you up um and that we can have the best insightful conversations as the next two hours unfolds well because we know each other and have been through so many games together we don't have to comes with time do as much of that as <laughs> yeah. you would think but we have production meetings with our producer uh, before each game. So we sort of know what we're going to do in the pregame. We know what, what the open's going to be. But the beauty of it is after that ball gets tipped for the opening tip, uh, you don't know what's going to happen next. But there's a chemistry between us 
Um, we know each other so well. We very rarely step on one another. And uh, I'd like to think we complement each other a lot. Uh, again, we it's the same skill set of experience. We've both been watching the Heat for, for 30 seasons. So we are on the same page. Um, we don't always agree 100%, but I, I think we're each comfortable enough with each other that if we disagree with something on the air, we can talk about it. And uh, we enjoy each other's company. We have great respect for each other. You know, uh, we were both from New York. I, I know, I, I, you know, I, I know where Tony's from. He was a very successful high school coach in Mount Vernon, New York. Um, so that the Northeastern basketball roots and then 30 years of heat history, it's as, it's as close a friendship and partnership that, that I think either one of us has, have ever had. How did you learn, um, just on your own side now, uh, how did you learn when to talk, when to not talk, and uh, what the right balance is for yourself? Still, still always learning that. Um, you know, my background is a radio play-by-play guy. And to be honest with you, that's all I ever really wanted to be. I, I'm so intrigued and infatuated with the art of radio play-by-play. It's, it's old school. I think it's somewhat of a lost art. Um, you know, my favorite all-time radio play-by-play guy in the NBA, and there have been many, many great ones. But Joe Tate, the former Cleveland Cavaliers announcer, mm-hmm. when I was living in Providence, I used to uh, be able to get 3WE in Cleveland on a little, on a little uh, radio that I had. And I would actually make Joe Tate flashcards and I put together a list of, of terminology of court geography of the way he described things. He's one of the only guys that I would tell you that every single word that man used on a broadcast added to the description of the game. So I love that. I I remember one time when I, at the beginning of my career doing games for Cornell, we had a, a Cornell professor who loved, who loved basketball. His name was Daniel Sisler. And he was, uh, he lost his eyesight in world war two and he would come to the home games with a radio and listen. And there was one game, uh, Cornell at Columbia and he was doing a lecture in New York city. And he, unbeknownst to me, he comes to the game at the Levy and Jim in, in at Columbia. And the person he was with said, could professor Sisler sit next to you and put on a, I was doing the game by myself that night. He said, can he, can he sit with you and, and wear headsets and listen to the game that way? And I said, of course, and sitting there with a basketball fan who could not see the game for himself and calling it for him was the greatest experience I ever had as a, as a young broadcaster to understand exactly what that job was all about. So all, my whole early career was trying to, you know, become the best radio play by play guy I could be. And then all of a sudden, uh, when I, when I joined forces with Nesson and now I started doing TV play by play, it's been, uh, you know, a 30 year process of trying to say less and tailoring your play by play to TV. So it's a cross between, you know, some radio fundamentals, but TV enables you to not have to call every pass and, and every dribble. Uh, it frees you up to, to tell stories, uh, to talk with your partner, um, and to talk about the game that you're watching without sort of being, you know, burdened to, or, or in charge of, you know, describing every move that's made, which you have to do on radio. So, um, and, and there are times where you know that you've got to let the telecast breathe. Um, when you're doing TV, you know, there are replays, there are roll-ins, there are promos, there's a sideline go to go to. Uh, I think you can't fight any of that. You've got to be the point guard and navigate through all of that 
honor everything that you need to do to make that telecast work from a business and, and basketball perspective. But the number one thing for me is always make sure I'm telling the story of the game uh, accurately. I, I take great pride, and so does Tony. We, we not only want to tell the Heat side of the story, but this is NBA basketball. I'm always going to take pride and make sure I'm prepared. And a lot of it comes from talking with coaches and players. I want to tell the other team's story as intelligently and as well as I can. Um, it, it keeps it fresh. It makes it fun. Uh, it keeps enhancing your own knowledge of the game. And I think, you know, a byproduct of that is it, it earns you respect throughout the league from other coaches, from other players and from other fan bases that may be watching your game. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's just a process of feeling your way through it, making sure you watch tape to self-critique yourself. But I think there's a there's a fine line of uh, not doing too much, doing just enough, making sure you're punctuating all the high points of the game, and then sometimes knowing when to lay out and let the picture tell the story. Do you still watch tape of yourself even to this day? Yeah. You know what makes it easier for me is that our games are, are constantly rebroadcast. There you go. So I don't watch every game back. But when we're home, uh, I know at noon that next day that game's going to be on again or at nine in the morning, it's going to be on again. I don't like to let too many games go by without watching and listening. But one thing I've learned is when you think you've had the greatest game, you you watch it back and you're like, yeah, wasn't that great. (laughs) And when you think you had an awful game, you watch it back and you're like, oh, wasn't that bad. So, but, you know, you hope to get to that consistent level, but it's always good to watch because, you know, whether you're a player or a broadcaster, the, the tape doesn't lie. And, um, you know, you need to do that. I think you really need to be in touch with exactly what you're doing. And, and, you know, here I am 30 years into my heat thing and I'm still trying to get better at it. And, but most importantly to me, I'm still passionate about it. I still love game night. Um, and not just the broadcasting of it. I love talking to the other coach and interacting with players on both teams and, and like last night, for example, they had a great conversation after uh, Dwayne Casey, the coach of the Raptors, after his press conference was done, he spent about 10 minutes with myself and Tony and our Spanish and English radio announcer. Now, we know Dwayne for a while, but we got into a conversation with him about the beginning of his career. He played at Kentucky for Joe B. Hall. And I asked him how he knew, when did he know he wanted to get into coaching? And I got all this great information. I used none of it on the air. The only thing I used in that conversation was that he described Bam Adebayo, our rookie, who was a Kentucky kid too. He said it re- that, that Bam reminded him of Sean Kemp. So I had pages of notes that I took in this conversation with Dwayne Casey. Last night, I used just that. It didn't fit in the game to talk about Dwayne's you know, career. And, co- and maybe it won't fit in any game. But it enriched my own knowledge and, appreci- uh, and appreciation for who that man is. And, and that's part of the process of, of doing this job that I really, really enjoy. How do you get into that conversation? You know, pregame, you're you know, opposing head coach to get into a little bit of his backstory. Um, and part of that is, you know, knowing each other and having that prior relationship. But uh, how do you broach a subject that is a little bit more off the beaten path that helps, you know, enrich your knowledge that may eventually somewhere down the line help you out on the air painting a better picture? Well, I think some of it comes from experience and years of knowing somebody. And, um, you know, one of the simple things, I'll tell you one of the simple things that Tony and I do, and you would think this would be the most basic thing that any announcer 
in a pro sport would do. They stagger the pregame press conference times for both coaches. So it is not only possible, it's, it's tailor-made to, to be able to listen to both coaches before the game. Um, after we listen to Eric Spolstra, we go to his, we go to down the hallway and he does a, a one-on-one with our radio, with our radio guy. So Tony and I, we listen to that too. And then inevitably coach Spolstra is going to spend about five to 10 minutes with us. Some of it off the record, but he, we get stuff from him there that nobody else has heard. And it's great stuff every single night. Now, again, some of it we use, some of it just gives us better knowledge about our subject. Sure. And then we do the same thing with the other, with the opposing coach. And I would say seven or eight out of every 10 coaches in, in our league gives us extra time. And it's earned us respect from, from the coaches of every other team in the league because not everybody else is doing it. So it gives us a, we're not doing it to earn respect. We're doing it to gain knowledge. Sure. But the byproduct of that is the other guys understand that you're trying to do a good job and you're asking them good questions and you're taking the time to, to acquaint yourself with their story. So with Dwayne Casey, I've known him for years and, um, you know, I, how the conversation started last night, we started talking about Kentucky basketball and, um, the name Leonard Hamilton came up. Now Leonard was the head coach at the university of Miami for years. He's now Florida state. He was when, when, when Dwayne Casey started at Kentucky and when he played at Kentucky, Leonard was an assistant coach there. So that's how it got started. We started talking about Leonard Hamilton and, and then I sort of guided the conversation. I I asked Dwayne, I said, when did you consider getting into coaching? And he said he was on an elevator with Joe B hall as a (laughs) senior. And Joe B hall said to him, Dwayne, what are you thinking about doing next year? And he and Dwayne had a job with Humana and uh, Joe B. Hall said to him, well, that sounds good. Dwayne he goes, but I think you'd make a great coach. You want to join us as a graduate assistant. And to me, I love that story. We didn't get a chance to tell it, but I love that story that his life changed because of an elevator ride with Joe B. Hall. And now he spent a lifetime as a, as a coach in, in both college and professional basketball. And, and it got deeper and we went on and on, but that's how that whole thing started. And again, a lot of it is, you know, your experience of knowing people and taking the time uh, to be attentive to both sides of the story every single night. I'm sure there's a lot of factors in it, but on the application side of that, what makes a story well told when it comes time to eventually work that into a broadcast? Um, I think number one is the timing of it. Does it fit into the flow of the game at that time, or is it a force uh, or a distraction? It's like a force shot or um, so does it add to or detract from the broadcast? I think that's what you got to judge for yourself before you tell the story. And you got to tell it in such a way, even on television. Listen, you can talk over action. But if you if, if that ball goes up and down the court once, twice, three times, and you're still in the same story, that's either got to be one of the great stories <laughs> of all time or you've gone on too long. Sure. So you've got to find a way to tell stories, you know, well, but also concisely. All right, that's Eric Reed joining us here on Play by Play Cast on a game day, nonetheless. I caught him, I think the time was eight minutes after he had finished his preparation for Heat Pacers on the day that we did this uh, conversation. I think he had, he told me, he, he told me the time to call him, kind of when he figured he would be in the clear. And uh, he, he was right, like spot on, like six days in advance. 
He had, he had finished eight minutes prior uh, to our conversation. It's that broadcaster's intuition. You know when your stuff is going to be done uh, and when you'll have some time. Uh, so thanks again to Eric Reed for taking the time to join us here on the pod. I was just kind of in a, I was in a very, and I said this before the interview, kind of detail-oriented mood when we recorded that podcast. Uh, and I thought there was really good stuff in there in terms of, um, you know, working with an analyst for the first time, what it's going to be like for him establishing that new rapport um, when he's no longer working with Tony uh, next season, uh, what goes into all of that and kind of trying to figure that out and um, what it's like working with an analyst that he works with every day now, um, working with Tony and getting on the same page and what they talk about and, and, you know, do they talk in breaks and how much do they go over before a game starts? Um, things that you just don't think about initially sometimes, uh, but I thought it was really good to dive into with Eric. And then, of, of course, you know, you hear all these guys talk about still listening to themselves and still trying to get better and still self-critiquing. Um, so, you know, always reassuring when you hear that from guys at that level. Hey, we everybody does it. Everybody still takes the time to listen back to themselves, be it Mike Breen, who we had on a couple episodes ago, Eric Reed um, doing it again here today. And then the one thing I think that overarching will stick with me most from that conversation, and I've got to see if we can't get him on the podcast, um, because it would be really fun. And being in the Mid-American Conference, uh, I do go to Cleveland a couple times a year, Cleveland-ish a couple times a year, um, for basketball and whatnot. The line from Joe Tate, or the line about Joe Tate, and making literally every word that comes out of your mouth matter in a broadcast, which is ironic based on the amount of ums, oohs, and circuitous talking I've done on this podcast. But the the line from Eric in this podcast, if you take nothing else away from it, is the the belief in Joe Tate maximizing his verbiage and and not just maximizing the words that he's using but that every word had a purpose a pass wasn't lobbed if it wasn't lobbed you didn't just say lobbed because it was a pass it's the exact descriptor of what you looked at um, and being that attentive to detail and how that has influenced him from the beginning and throughout his career. If you take nothing else from today's episode, uh, let that one nugget uh, ring true with you. And we'll have to see about trying to talk to Joe Tate here on Play by Playcast before it's all said and done. See if we can't make that happen. I've now made a promise I probably can't fulfill, but we'll see what happens. Um, anyway, we're out of time. We will uh, do it again next week here on a Friday morning. I don't yet know whose guest, uh, who the guest is for tomorrow or what i don't yet know who the guest is for next week uh so stay tuned and uh, follow us on social media and uh maybe we'll, we'll send out some hints tips or teasers um when we get that one uh all lined up but uh stick with us we'll talk to you again next friday morning enjoy your weekend of broadcasting um or your weekend of travel to broadcasting it's another episode of play by play cast we are in the books hit it marshmallow we're out